a good move. Why'd you dance him? Dancing is forbidden. Running crew, welcome to Dancing is Forbidden and Aqua Teen Hunger Force Exploration. I am Ronnie, and on this podcast, I am usually watching through and talking about every Aqua Teen episode, but this week we had a special surprise guest, Dave Willis himself, co creator of Aqua Teen Hunger Force, voice of Carl, Meatwad, Ignignoct, and a million other characters. Oh my god! Holy shit! Yeah, that's my reaction as well. What exactly did I tell Dave that made him say, oh my god, holy shit? Well, you'll have to listen and find out. Some of the topics we get into are Aqua Teen Forever Plantasm, so, you know, a little spoiler warning there if you haven't seen the film yet. We also talk about Aquadonk side pieces. I ask Dave some episode-specific questions, some of the questions that I have not found answers to in my year-plus of covering the show. We touch on Dave's writing partners on Adult Swim throughout the years. And finally, at the very end, so make sure you listen all the way through, we get Carl's thoughts on Foreigner's upcoming farewell tour. Cold as ice, baby. I mean, it's Dave Willis. I don't think he needs an introduction. Let's jump in and ask Dave some questions. Let's talk about this thing that was just released called Plantasm, the uh, much-anticipated Aqua Teen film here, and the full title on this is Aqua Teen Forever Plantasm. I was wondering if you guys were playing with a longer title for this one, or did you know that you wanted to to name it something short and concise? Uh, I don't ever think we really thought about it very much. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. I mean, Matt is Matt uh, Malero is like a huge, huge. Uh, phantasm fan he used to have a clock on the on his wall from from the uh ill-remembered <laughs> phantasm four uh lord of the dead lord of the dawn dawn of the lord i don't remember <laughs> the name of the title but um and remember if this one doesn't scare you you're already dead phantasm lord of the dead he certainly is, uh, you know, when the idea was kind of coming into shape, he was like plantasimo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we like the Aqua Teen Forever, just the concept. I mean, it's, it's the theme, you know. So I noticed in the 2007 film, there is a, a uh, tanning store that they go into and it's called Tantasm. I didn't know if, if you guys were behind <laughs> that or if that was like a complete coincidence. Well, um, you know, I don't know. I don't even remember that. Bob Pettit did all of our backgrounds, though, and he'd always try to put puns and jokes in the pack. And and uh, and Bob Bob is very friend, friendly with me and and Matt, and I'm sure I'm sure he probably put that in there as just sort of a <laughs> nod to Matt. Sure. Okay. So with Aquadong side pieces earlier this year, the whole premise of that was kind of showing what the Aqua Teens and their villains. We're up to in 2022, but I was most excited about Plantasm because we would get to see how how yourself and Matt would write for Aqua Teen in 2022. And I think the two biggest examples of that really are the recasting of Boxy Brown 
and also having <laughs> women characters that aren't just there to be, you know, lusted after or harassed <laughs> by the Aqua Teens. So circling back to the Boxy Brown thing, of course, you have Killer Mike. And I was listening to the commentary and you said that your boss made you do that. I was wondering how true that was or or just how that kind of came to be. Well, I wouldn't say he really made me do it in that sort of sense. I mean, you know, you recall there was a there was a controversy maybe a couple of years ago uh, with the show Central Park, where they had an African-American character who uh, was voiced by. I want to say Jillian Bell, maybe I'm not sure, but a white, a white actor. And it was, it was pointed out and it kind of became a thing uh, in the media and, and understandably so honestly, it's like sort of, yeah, it's kind of weird. Uh, so uh, he, he mentioned it when we first wrote the script, like, you know, maybe someone else ought to play Boxy Brown. And, <laughs> and uh, Cause I always did it. I always pitch shifted it and sort of did this, kind of shaft thing but sure was brother we raised the roof all up in there we really didn't give it a, a second worth of thought it was like yeah this is a fun stunt cast opportunity and maybe we can comment on how things have have changed a little bit but but you know boxy boxy just identified as black he was never he's a box <laughs> i mean he can't he, you know you know when i did squidbillies you know when we switched uh Voices on Squidbillies, people just lost their mind. I was like, he's a squid. <laughs> he, he can be anybody. Just relax. Everybody relax. I, I want to say, though, I was so glad to see Boxy there because that was a character I thought we would never see again. So I'm glad you guys found a way to to bring him back in a 2022-friendly in a, uh, way. Yeah, yeah. The women in the film, um, I, I did notice that uh, Carl and Shake don't really interact with any women in the film. So I think that's why you guys can get away with not having them just be objects. <laughs> Shake is probably an incel. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, as, as we saw with Svetlana, he wants women to cook for him, at least. Yeah, but he would, he's saving up for calf implants. <laughs> a, a, a synthetic jawline. He thinks that's the issue. <laughs> Carl just thinks that women are stuck up. <laughs> How was that for you guys, though? Because whenever I hear you guys talk about writing for women in the past, you guys were just like, we wouldn't be good at doing that. But in this film, I thought I thought the women char characters were great. So I was wondering how that was for you guys writing for them. I, well, you know what? I think we just joked about that. I think that was a big joke. Um, and the show became the show became very... Uh, when you're when you're doing a show where you're making where it's not like a massive group of people where it's just a tiny group and it's just mm -hmm. me and Matt we just tend to go down avenues that maybe aren't traditionally uh, female. I mean, I know we have female some female fans, but um, that that's always been a joke of ours in interviews. You know how one dimensional our female characters sometimes are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, nobody nobody wants to see <laughs> nobody wants to see that in a movie in 2020 <laughs> 2022, so you know. So, Plantasm introduces two new alien races. We have the Japongoloids and the Fraptaculans. I was wondering what the inspiration for those two new alien races were. Uh, I think it it seemed like a very funny idea to have two races that just completely cannot stand each other. Like, just have galactic, like, a history of a millennium of wars against each other. And yet, they're both tricked into coming to Earth to work 
at an amazing factory and they have to work together and they have to form a union together when they despise each other. And it just sort of seemed like it was just a rich, um, but that's it. You know, it's just kind of, um, did you have any input on like how they look or, or like their physical attributes? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about one of them, you know, one of the races just constantly emitting slime and the other race <laughs> just constantly like molting like five <laughs> times a day. And it just, it just like, like a, had just came out of a, uh, husk of just like <laughs> like like a pork rind yeah, uh, yeah type husk but um yeah oh yeah we worked with the uh, the designers at bento box and craig harton and and uh you know and, and got those designs to a place where we we liked it and we loved the idea too i mean there was a lot of stuff in the current news about like you know amazon and people trying to uh unionize at starbucks and and um there was a big Amazon warehouse boat going on in Alabama at the time. And, you know, and you'd hear stories of people working there and having to sleep in their cars and stuff. And it just, you know, we're not, ne- we're never ripped from the headlines, obviously, but, you know, it just sort of seemed like, oh, this could be an interesting way to connect all this. Well, you touch on an interesting topic because I've, I've heard you discuss the whole uh, amazing aspect of the film but I haven't heard you talk about the plant aspect. My my suspicion was you guys were maybe kind of inspired by the popularity of gardening during COVID because I, I assume <laughs> lots of people were getting shipped plants at the time. But I, I was wondering where the whole plant aspect came from. Not too much of it. I did remember, like, in some ways, Amazon has made things so much easier for so many people. and But in other ways, you're thinking like, God, how much waste does this service generate. And I remember reading an article like 10 years ago about some company where these young guys were coming out of, uh, it was RISD or something. They were designing packaging based on these very fast growing fungus. And they could put the fungus into a mold. And all of a sudden, what ordinarily you would do with styrofoam, you had this biodegradable fungus, but you know, they had to spray it, make sure it didn't smell. They had to do all this other stuff. And but it, it seemed kind of like, wow, that would be remarkable if that could be something utilized. And I'm, then I thought, you know, you just think about all the boxes all around and stuff. And it's like, what if you did just make a box out of seeds and it would just plant? But but I think there was also this dual thing where, you know, vegetarians are vegetarians for various number of reasons. And I've dabbled in it over the years, never fully committed, but I... I completely understand it. I never, I never did just maybe because of pure selfish joy in eating meat sometimes. But I thought like, what, you know, for those that do, that are vegetarian, that uh, do it just for the well-being of animals. Like what if they discovered that vegetables had a soul <laughs> and like had a, had a spirit and had emotions and families. And I was like, I think that kind of came into it too, in a weird sort of way. Otherwise, it could be a pretty boring movie if if the plants just stay there and don't say anything or do anything. Um, but but yeah, I, I think those are pun intended the seeds for <laughs> the seeds for our idea. Perfect. Moving on to the the theme song for this film, which I absolutely love, even without the the Aqua Teen aspect. I think it's such a great song. You could get to me what? Get knocked, you got a beef, hope you rethought. Try like cock the glock if you wanna see God. Mass 
Mr. Shaker, make him eat your maker quickly. Drop a hot call on your couch. It's our city. I've spoken to MC Chris about your input on, on the songs he did for the show. And I know from the special features that you guys were involved with Mastodon and Cameo for their music in the 2007 film. I was wondering what input, if any, you had on the Run the Jewels theme for this film. Zero. <laughs> We can't really, I, I don't think we could really write, like even the MC, Chris, the, the MC Chris stuff. I mean, we wrote the original song and he just completely took it and he kept the the meat of it, the idea and everything, obviously, and how it fit into the show. But he, you know, completely reworked it and made it this sort of fun, special thing that would just never, I mean, we, we, we were, we'll write rhymes and it just won't, it just, Someone can't spit them the way we we, we write them. It's just not going to work. And uh, and yeah, and we in later years we sort of took to changing the um, titles of the show and the and the themes. It was just a fun way to sort of repackage. And um, Jason Demarco, our head of on air, is uh, I mean I think he is I think he is responsible for getting those two guys t- together from Run the Jewels. Uh, he connected them on something and they just became friends. And next thing you know, they're putting out an album and Killer Mike had already done an album for William Street, which is something that um, William Street Records, which I think uh, Jason was kind of spearheading. And um, so I think their history is deep with Adult Swim and William Street. And it just seemed like just such a natural because they're they're so great. And, and uh, yeah, and we were thrilled with it. They were they're awesome. I mean. I mean, Killer Mike is kind of like the mayor of Atlanta in a weird sort of way, you know? So it, it's it's really nice to sort of connect it all. Mm-hmm, sure. Besides the full Moon and Night text script, which you've spoken about a lot, is there anything else that you wanted to do for the film that you were unable to just because of budgetary or time constraints? No, but that texting thing was, yes, it was huge. I mean, we came in and the contract was like 70 minute movie. And I was like, yeah, this uh, this could be really really fun, and this is definitely be something fun to watch. I mean, I'm I'm always looking for something like that. You know, it's like everything everything is too long. Everyone is because of the technology and because of streaming and because of no constraints. I think things have gotten bloated. You know, and and ordinarily, if I see a movie is seventy five minutes long, I'm like, oh. This must this must be terrible. <laughs> Some editor really had to do a hack job to just kind of get this watchable. But I love how brisk it is. But yes, the texting is the one thing. I mean, the marketing department was like, we love this. We cannot afford to do it. Uh, so for the longest time, I was like, can we embed an ad and get somebody to underwrite it? Because the only way this really works and is really funny is if your phone just almost overheats and dies from these texts. <laughs> if you have like four, 400 texts, you know, and you have to shut it off and put it in the other room. But, uh, you know, whatever. We got to do it. It was cool. We're happy with it. So I was wondering if there was any aspect of the 2007 film that you thought was was better executed than in Plantasm. If there was something in, in colon movie film that you were maybe more proud of. Um... No, I, I really don't. Well, if I could ask, let's say, let's go back to 2007 and say that you just finished working on the Colin movie film and through some miracle of time travel, you somehow got to see in 2007, 
Plantasm. What do you think that you would have said in 2007 about Plantasm if you just miraculously got to see it? I would like to think that that I would have thought it was a better movie then, too. And I, I think we were also probably moving so fast and still just kind of, we were probably just drunk on our own fart fumes, you know, <laughs> the, you know, in 2007. And, you know, I think our boss is even like, you know, I would have probably told you to, you know, do some punch ups in this. And I think, I mean, we, we vary in what we say about it. I mean, I think Matt says it's a very fan service film and that's, I think that's true, but I just think we just got self, probably self-indulgent. And, um, so it's kind of, it's got a lot of cool things about it, but it's, um, it's just kind of a, a bloated mess in some ways. And I, I feel like Plantasm is so much more of a, just an enjoyable, fun, yeah, just real brisk, mm-hmm. just, just a breeze, man. It just goes down so easy, you know? When I saw you mention the, the running length before the film came out, I was really excited about that, I guess, just to see, you know, since you guys had these kind of strict guidelines in terms of time what you could do with that and and i think it really like on all levels i just loved it like i said i like it more than the 2007 film and my my wife watched it with me and she has seen some aqua teen but not a ton and and she really liked the film as well so oh great uh, hopefully hopefully other people are feeling the same way about it i hope so too you know and if people don't buy it that hopefully they'll rent it and it'll eventually i guess end up on streaming and you know we'll see i think it's a real unique story too i just don't think you really see you just kind of get sick of the same same stories and i think if the algorithm you know with streaming the algorithm is just going to figure out what you want and start feeding you that thing mm-hmm. i don't know if plantasm does well they'll do another one and and uh you know and they're doing the metalocalypse one and the um venture brothers one i think it's a brilliant idea you know just these short little movies for that hardcore fan base out there you know, that is, that has been craving this stuff. So, mm-hmm. well, if we could move on to Aquadonk a little bit, sure. Credited on every one of those shorts are uh, in the music department, DJ AT and T's. I don't know if you could tell me who that is. Cause I couldn't find out who they are, but they, they did the music for, for Aquadonk, I guess. Well, I can tell you it's, it's a guy, it's a guy that has worked with us for a long time. Okay. I don't know. If I don't know the two people. I know one of them is a guy that has worked with us for a very long time. He started with us as an intern, worked his way up. And I don't know if he credited himself that way because he does not want to be mentioned. I'm going to, I'm going to take a chance that and say though, that he would want that. And, um, uh, it was, uh, Nick Incatano. Oh, sure. Who, okay. I don't know. Nick's, Nick's just kind of the guy that, if we have a unique problem that we need solving, he just is sort of capable of a lot of just crazy, amazing stuff. He can make music. He can do art for us. He can he can film you and Matt while you uh, write a script. <laughs> <laughs> but he he's very um, yeah. Nick Nick's like this crazy out of the box like talent. Like he's there's just so much stuff he can do and he will always continually surprise you and and we kind of had a tight budget on these right of course you know how can you uh yeah yeah nick's amazing nick is amazing 
Speaking of the budget, I had Nick Gibbons on the show and we were talking specifically about the Moonmaster 9 Aqua Donk. And Nick mentioned that uh that you guys at one point were were like okayed for four to five minutes on the shorts, and then that I guess got dialed back to like two minutes. I don't know uh if if you know exactly what he's talking about, but um, I, I was just wondering if you found any of the shorts to be too difficult to pack into two minutes. Nah, I mean, I always feel like our episode ideas could be two minutes if they had to be, and they're be- they're usually better when they're longer, 11 minutes, but it's like it's plumping out something. And that's kind of the hardest thing is to find the idea, the idea that you, you know, would want to write about. But uh, I don't know if there's anything particular about that per se. I think they just sort of said, how would you like to make some villain side stories? And uh, we were like, cool. And it was just thrown out there three to five minutes or whatever. But I, I think everyone at the network felt really strongly that it was like, you know, any more than three minutes and it kind of, I don't think it, I don't think it was a real comment on the creative so much as it's just like, that's about the right size of a meal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you, you don't want to, uh, I'm going to compare us to steak because that's how I think of us as, <laughs> as steak as a really just well marbled sirloin, but, uh, you don't want a 60 ounce steak, <laughs> 12, 14 ounces. That's all you need. And it, and you filled up and you feel good. No, I, um, you know, shorter is always better if it, if it's all if it's all equal. And yeah, three minutes feels about right. Mm-hmm. Back to uh, the Moonmaster Nine Aqua Donk. In that one, we have Samuel of the Cosmos, played by Nick Gibbons, being texted by the Moonanites. I assume that you guys came up with that first, right? Um, Did you write that episode first and then uh, go on to do the texting element in the film? I guess we did. Yeah, I guess so. So you inspired yourselves. I guess so. I didn't even think about that, really. <laughs> really? Yeah, I had not really made that uh, that connection. I just remember when we were writing the movie, thinking about, and honestly, when we were writing the movie, I think initially the idea was you would just get texted. Your phone would be hounded. And then, of course, it made perfect sense for it to be the Moon Knights doing it, but but I think we did have that idea kind of going in, but I don't think we ever connected it with that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Read the new text we sent you. It will make us laugh. Read it in wait, boy. My balls are small. I can't hear you across the vacuum of space. Scream it all the way to England. So with the MCP pants, Aquadonk, obviously I understand why you guys used the spider asset of him, but... If it were up to you, would you have liked to given him a new form or were you just happy to, to stick with the spider? It felt like um, too much um, pipe delay for for a three minute thing. Like, oh, he's also been reincarnated as this thing. Certainly that would have made sense for longtime fans of the show. But I think we also wanted the these to immediately, you know, for someone who doesn't know the show, Okay, they gotta buy that it's a spider that likes to rap, but <laughs> but but once they get past that, they then they can get past that. I feel like things have gotten plenty surreal since when we first started making the show. But uh I'm sure that might have crossed our minds, but I think we probably probably scratched that out pretty early on. Right. 2022 has been a big year for you, not just because of Aquadonk and Plantasm, but also 
with the YPF shorts that that recently came out, which were great. I loved all of them. And the thing that really struck me about those, because you guys were going from live action to uh, animation, is that you really took full advantage of the animation aspect. Because every single one of those uh, shorts that I was watching, I was like, I don't know how they would do this in live action. So I thought that was cool that you didn't just try to one-to-one it into animation, you went bigger with it because animation allowed you to. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering if you can speak to how working on the Aquadonks differed from working on the YPF shorts. Was one of them easier or or harder than the other one? Yeah, I would say in some ways the Aquadonks might have been easier just because we had a system of how we made our shows and we did it that way for years and years and years and without getting too complex and boring and, and production centric we never made a cartoon the way people make cartoons which is start with storyboards and then make an animatic we do a radio play of the audio but we never had a storyboard artist and early on we but we had a very good editor jay edwards and so we just talked with jay about making a animatic with Photoshop files of a background, Photoshop files of the characters. And that's how we would build the rough cut of the show. And for better or worse, we just didn't fix what wasn't broke, even as technology improved over time. And it was like, at a certain point, it would have made sense to move over to storyboards. So we did Aquadonk the same way we had always done uh, Aqua Teen. The only difference is Bob Pettit, our longtime back ground artist. Uh, I think he was at that point just so burned out on us on our show that I think he was, <laughs> but so, so, uh, Bento box, you know, did that. And then Plantasm, we straight up did like a classic animated movie. We, we storyboarded the thing and we did that with, um, with, uh, your pretty face as well, but we worked with a new studio on your pretty face just cause we wanted to try something different. And, um, Working remotely with people that you haven't worked with is, you know, there's a curve to that. And and I also think, you know, we're probably not the biggest budget, so we're probably not. They've probably got a skeleton crew working on our thing. And, and um, you know, and I, I think they're probably maybe younger and there's some inexperience there. And so there are certain elements of communication where you're saying, you know, they might take you very literally where what you really want for them to do is to go nuts with it. You know, you want them to show off what they can do and you can dial that back and carve that down to what you need, but you don't want someone to go, you know, look over their shoulder as you're hovering and go here and just inch it along here, here. So it takes a while to figure out that communication, but the studio we used was fantastic and they really brought those characters to life. And of course we had Christy Caracas who, you know, is the lead guy on uh, on Super Jail and um, and Ballmasters and and Christy designed the characters and kind of laid out like a blueprint for the studio. So so it was nice re- reinventing. But Aquadonk was just like getting the band back together. We used people that we've been using forever, and so everybody knows their role. Everybody knows what to do. Everybody comes with one voice, and you know it's. It was. It was just like playing the hits. It was awesome. So speaking of YPF, which you uh, co-write with or co-created, really, with Casper Kelly, you've created three big shows for Adult Swim uh, with Aqua Teen, with Matt Malero, 
with uh, YPF with Casper Kelly and then Squidbillies with Jim Fortier. So you've had these three writing partners and I was wondering if you can kind of speak to each of their uh, kind of like like what they bring to the table and also how they complement your creative style. Oh, wow. Well, um, that's a interesting. I mean, all three guys are just insanely funny people and insanely creative people. Um, you know, Matt was just very funny and uh, we, we just uh, clicked in a way. And I also felt like Matt is doesn't judge. He just sort of he just sort of tries to build on your idea. And we would write scripts and there there wasn't a whole lot of, no, no, not that, you know, like there was no, it was all very, you know, like the rule of improv, I guess, that you always hear. Yes. And, you know, I mean, he, he would run the keyboard and it's just, yes. And, and we would, we would just roll and just get going. And, um, we complimented each other very well in that respect. And, and, uh, I think we really enjoyed working together and we came up with Aqua Teen together out of that space ghost world. And, um, and we just click. I mean, we had not worked together for for uh, years before Aquadonk, you know. And uh, once they we got back in the saddle, it was just instant. Jim is a, is a great writer, and he's very funny. Uh, and but he's also very he's very particular about about cartoons. And he has a very specific voice, uh, and. It also helped that Jim and I, even though we had never really worked together, we went to the same high school. So we kind of, kind of, we didn't know each other that well then, but then we got to know each other through college. And then we became very good friends after college, li- living in Atlanta, you know, and then he started working a cartoon and, and um, we were just really good friends. Um, and he's probably maybe more like me in in a lot of respects, particular about certain things in production. So I think we had a little bit of a curve to get over that, Mm -hmm. but we spoke from sort of the same place and he's probably the funniest guy like in person, you know, he's not really a performer, but as just a pure funny dude, he's, he can be hysterical. So once we kind of got over figuring out, well, how do we, how will this work? Because I think he and I both like to do the same type of things um, on a production. Uh, whereas Matt and I, Matt drills down on, on the mix and I'll drill down on the edit. And, um, you know, whereas in Squids, I mean, both Jim and I drill down on the edit, you know. we So uh, once, I think once we figured that out though, I felt like we, we really got rolling, uh, rolling well with that show. And then Chris, uh, it was just kind of accidental. We we would just get coffee, and I just sort of had, uh, admired his mind and his writing. And you know, he had this idea, and I grafted this other idea onto it. And we we realized we'd never be able to make it at Adult Swim, and we pitched it to Super Deluxe, which was around at the time down the hall. And it was called 10,000 Virgins. And it was sort of the seed of what became Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. And we just uh, enjoyed making that together and enjoyed getting to know each other through that process. And, we, you know, we, we just, I mean, he's kind of like a, we kind of have like a little coffee clutch. I mean, even though we haven't really hung out that much during COVID, I mean, I feel like I talk to him on the phone every two days about movies or something, you know. And, and um, 
you know, and I, I also think he, uh, it's a similar thing. He's got very strong opinions about certain things and, and, uh, we both sort of share a passion for certain elements of the, of, uh, production. I mean, he and I both wanted to be directors. So this was a way for us to direct. Let's pitch this TV show that's live action and then we'll, we'll direct. And it's very, it's difficult to direct with someone when you haven't done that before. And we figured out a way to do that. And then at a certain point, we're like, let's trade off shows so that we each have an opportunity to just run the ship, you know? But I mean, I think in each circumstance, you have to be able to put your ego in check. You have to know when your partner is like, Hey, they wouldn't, they're not saying this because they're an asshole. They're saying this because they, they genuinely are feeling this way. So maybe you should evaluate your passion for it and see, see why they said that, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's a learning experience, but I feel like it, it certainly makes you stronger and it fills out your, your blind spots. And, uh, so each one is different, but each one, I mean, I love working with each guy. I would work with, with each guy in a a second. Uh, and I, I feel lucky that, that these people were here, right. You know, because I, I don't, I know I wouldn't have, um, gotten there on my own, you know, it it made all the difference in the world in my career, you know. I have a few episode-specific questions here. So you've actually contributed to the podcast. I don't know if you're aware or not, because I don't know how that conversation looked. But I reached out to Ned asking about who Hayden Ward was, because she popped up doing voice work in the episode The Clowning, and it was really bugging me, because she was the first real female character on Aqua Teen, and I couldn't find anything. And then he he reached out to you and you you responded to him. So I found out that, you know, she got you guys hooked up with with Dana Snyder. But then I reached out to MC Chris. And my understanding is she's also the friend who introduced MC Chris to you as well. Yes. So she's kind of like this un, this unsung hero of Aqua Teen. So I was so happy and I'm really thankful that you responded to Ned about that because I was, I was so happy to share her story. But but in season one, we we had Svetlana who... You know, I, I don't know if she's really a character or not because she doesn't even speak any real language, but she is voiced by Rita McGrath. I don't know if you could tell me who that is. Well, let me take one step back to and say Hayden. So Hayden was my girlfriend for a time mm-hmm. and she would always tell me about Dana and Dana went to college with Ashley, with Ashley, who was the other character in Robo Sitter, Sarah Silverman and Ashley Ward. But um all right, so you know all that. All right, because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hayden was Hayden went to the UCB for a while, and um, and yeah, she she hooked me up with all these crazy people. Um, uh, no, that was a woman that worked in the building who oh Rita n- knew how to speak Russian. I don't know if she was of Russian descent. That's the only reason we cast her, but she, but she was great. She was great. We were like, how do you say this in Russian? And she's fantastic. So she was speaking a real language then. Yeah, Russian. Mm-hmm. I tried to look it up and like people were like, oh, I speak whatever language and that's not it or whatever. So, wow, I, I thought it was gibberish, but I guess I am uh, wrong. I'll have I to- don't know if there's a difference between Russian and Chechen. Chechen is slightly funnier a word, but but uh, so but I think it's it's I think it's straight up Russian. Cool, cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, her IMDb credit was just that one episode, so I didn't have anything to find about Rita. But I, yeah, I'm glad uh, you're able to tell me that. 
on HBO Max, the episode Total Recarl, the one where they kill Carl with the toilet, and then they hook his head up to Frylock's computer, and at one point, Meatwad's like, oh, he's dropping F-bombs. And if you pause it, you can see that there are F-bombs on the screen. Like, he is saying, fuck. Uh, but on HBO Max, they edited that out, and they changed wow. it. I was wondering if... if They changed the joke? They changed all the F-bombs on the screen, so I guess... Oh. Oh, they blur it or something? Or No, they changed it to completely new words. So I was going to ask if you guys were behind that, but I take it you were not, that they just had some random person go in and change it. No, but it. that's what I'll check out right now. Yeah. After we're done. Yeah, they changed it completely. Uh, yeah. 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 No, I did, I did not know that. I did not know that. But yeah, that sounds like something we might have. I don't know. I mean, uh, or one of our artists would have mm-hmm. would have done that. yeah no i i was 10 years old sitting there with a dvd remote trying to pause it to see if i could see it and sure <laughs> enough there was there was f-bombs on the screen and i was so happy because i sat there for like three minutes trying to do it so moving on in the episode spirit journey formation anniversary there are the two scorpions and they are credited as bb leland but rumor has it that it's actually john dimaggio voicing them i don't know is is that correct? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. We were non-union and um Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just didn't I just didn't So you know understand all that. All right, yeah. yeah. Um my next question is about Tom Sharpling because you guys worked with him uh on Aqua Teen. He did the voice of Willie Nelson, which that character visually has come back a lot, that onion spider thing. And then he did the 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 uh interstitials of the uh documentary of you guys writing that episode, the cloning. He kind of was dressed up as a king introducing the segment and stuff. And and you've been on his show, uh the, the best show. I was wondering why right. you guys didn't do more together because it seemed like you were pretty friendly. Oh, uh I I'm so Pretty friendly with with Tom. I mean, Tom's. Uh, uh, I, I try to give him a call maybe like once a year, you know, and check in, or he'll text me every once in a while. I mean, he he actually you saw Plantasm. I mean, we should give him a credit because that we had written that Space Jam Space Jam three for another NBA player who was a big animation fan, and I thought for sure this guy would do it, but then he got a job coaching and couldn't do it. And so I was talking with Tom. Tom used to write for NBA Inside Stuff, maybe, or, or Slam, maybe. Um, and uh, so I was just asking Tom, like, who would be who would be the funny Tom? Yeah, I used Tom as a consultant. Gotcha. Uh, okay, cool. On that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love Tom. I love Best Show. I read his biography. His biography is great. It's really entertaining. I love Worser. Um, uh, just never. It just didn't work out. Well, no, I don't think we ever. But he he did a uh, he did a special for Adult Swim, one of those four a.m. things that didn't. I think he w- was sort of saw it as a pilot, and I guess it didn't. I don't know if it got picked up or it didn't get picked up. But I, you know, I don't ever work in development. I don't I never, don't ever get privy to that stuff. So, um, but yeah, yeah, no, Tom's of his own. Uh, He's built his own universe with Best Show. I think he feels. I think Best Show is sort of his his uh, gift to the world. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah. He's busy. He's busy. Yeah, Tom's like this real unique comedic voice. Like he was back when we first created Aqua Teen. He reached out to me, and uh, you know, it was really nice to have somebody that was not just sort of somebody that PR set up. You know, just reaching out like talking about a little bit of a kinship like he came down and we had this 
huge adult swim party and uh, he came down as a part of it. And, um, you know, so it sort of seemed like we were sort of traveling in the similar universes and, and um, I don't know, Tom's just kind of a, kind of a genius, but he's kind of got his own thing going with best show, you know? And so, yeah, I'd be thrilled to do anything with Tom ever. I mean, that's the reason why we brought Tom in on is because he was kind of like the first person who reached out to us that was somebody that was actually working in the field. You know, he was a writer on Monk and he would tell us like there were these older guys in the room, like he showed Aqua Teen to these older guys in the room and they just trashed it, just said it was just such a piece of shit. And and Tom was just like, Tom was like, I I think I know what these guys are doing. (laughs) (laughs) you know so i i don't know it was just it was just nice to have a fan where you were like oh yeah this is great you know yes and then of course he sends his cds and they're brilliant you know and you're like oh the gorch and and uh, rod rock rule you know and 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 all that and and um yeah it was nice You've spoken about how a lot of early Aqua Teen scripts are derived from rejected Space Ghost scripts, most notably Dumber Dolls, where uh, Space Ghost had this doll that dances into a fire to kill itself to get away from him. I don't know if you could remember any other scripts that were derived from uh, Space Ghost scripts. For example, there's the episode Dumber Days, where Meatwad, uh, he thinks he's smarter than he really is, and he gets like all these magic powers. Um, Not that one. Let me... Do you mind if I look up the first 10 episodes? <laughs> I just want to... Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I want to look at... Um, man, you are really bringing it. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. You know, Dumber Dolls definitely was kind of very born out of a space ghost. And I do feel like... I do feel like there were there were things in Space Ghost that were rejected by our boss that... I think we always sort of pocketed and said, that's funny. Right. You know, and maybe it would come back, but no, no, all that other stuff was, it just, it was just an exciting time. It was fun, fun to sort of create this other world and, and do this stuff there. So I'm looking at like bus of the undead <laughs> and uh, old drippy and, I remember where the germs of some of those ideas came from. I mean, like old drippy, like I had a roommate who just, we just had this war of attrition over who was going to do the <laughs> plates. And we just kept stacking the plates in the, in the sink until finally one day it was like, you're trying to eat dinner with uh, an egg beater <laughs> as a utensil. And you're like, all right, it's, fine, it's time. We, we, we need to both work together to solve this problem. You'd find a giant sheet of mold in there. Uh, All that stuff about Memphis in Bus of the Undead. I used to work on a boat that went through Memphis on the Mississippi River. I just remember someone talking about it. Oh, they have catfish? (laughs) (laughs) They light up the bridge? It's just wonderful. The bridge? All lit up at night? A, A question about hand banana. Uh, there is in Liverpool, UK. There is some sort of big art thing. It's called Super Lamb Banana. It's like a, uh, a it's like the front part of a. Okay, so you don't even know. Okay, so because because it's no. been speculated that you guys were inspired by that forehand banana, but obviously that's not the case. No, but I'll look it up. What is it? Yeah, a, a Super Lamb. Here, I'll just I could send it to Super Lamb Banana. Super Lamb Banana. Yeah. 
It's like a giant uh, yellow lamb thing what? with like a, yeah that and, and this predates the ham banana episode. No. Yes, sir. No. <laughs> it predates. Us? Yes, it predates you. Yes. My God. <laughs> my God. Yes, that's. Oh a, my uh, God. <laughs> you're putting the glasses on. <laughs> Holy shit! And it. It doesn't. It doesn't look that far removed from it either. Right. Yeah. It's like pretty dang similar. I thought it was a dog when I first saw a picture of it, but it's actually a lamb, I guess. But yeah, looks pretty damn similar to hand banana. It's a. It's a lamb. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't look. It looks like it. Yeah. I guess it does look like a lamb. That is crazy, man. That is crazy. No. <laughs> no. And we based it on Shake's hand. We just didn't know. That is nuts. You mind if I pour off and just refill my coffee? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course. All right, let's do that. While Dave's refilling his coffee, I thought I'd pop in here and say, hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Hope you are enjoying this interview. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to it as well on dancingisforbidden.com. New episodes are out every Monday. And we are actually almost done covering season two of the show, which is my favorite season, but I'm really excited to dive into, you know, season three and then eventually all the other seasons. So, hey, hope you can uh, stick around for the ride there. It's been a great journey and just such an honor. I grew up with this show. Being able to talk to these guys is just incredible. It hasn't even fully sunk in yet. I've also interviewed other people who have worked on Aqua Teen, like Jay Edwards, MC Chris, Nick Gibbons. So feel free to give those a listen too if you want to learn more about Aqua Teen and the people behind it. Everyone who I've talked to who's worked on this show is just so cool, and I'm excited to keep talking to people and trying to get those answers that I can't find anywhere else. You know, as a fan of the show, the show doesn't get covered as much as I think it should, so that's what I'm trying to do here. You know, while Dave was out getting his coffee, his his dog was in the room, and you can actually see his dog in Aqua Teen Forever Plantasm. For example, in the shot where Meatwad is covered in dog food at the bottom left, there's a little white dog and that is based on Dave's dog and little cutie pie. So so Dave, he was getting coffee and I was just sitting there staring at his dog. His dog was staring at me. Was a good time. I was I was starstruck. I would have asked some questions for you, but I just couldn't get anything out of my throat. But all right, Dave's coming back with his coffee. Let's jump back into it. If I could ask about how you got Mike Judge on uh, the episode Antenna, he does a little alien voice. Mike Judge, I initially met interviewing him for Space Ghost, and he did a very crazy, I think one of the questions I asked is, do you do any other voices? And he, he's like, not really. <laughs> you know, I said, because at the time, King of the Hill was coming out, I said, it's interesting that Hank Hill sounds an awful lot like uh, that neighbor, Beavis and Butthead. Tom Anderson, yeah. And he did a funny bit with that, but then he also... Uh, said, yeah, I have this one other voice. It's sort of this Hanna-Barbera villain. And I'm trying to remember what he said. It's like, uh, lay down your weapons, beast man. <laughs> and uh, it was like, <laughs> so years later, I reached out and was like, hey, would you do that guy for us? And I think he just does it for the love of the game. I don't know, yeah. you know. He, he doesn't have he, to do he, it. <laughs> he certainly doesn't need the money, I'm sure. And he's just like, he just, I think he just, enjoyed doing it so whenever i'd reach out you know he, he did it it was like super cool you know and at the time i think will forte played the other alien you need to tilt your head back carl you must keep your blood oh. further at a time before everyone realized how 
much of a genius that dude is. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh my God, I can't believe we got both of these guys uh, in this thing. So, If you could go back to 2000 and give a young, bright-eyed Dave Willis advice as he is sitting down to work on the Rabot episode for the first time ever, what advice would you give yourself knowing everything that you know now? I don't know if you can advise anyone to embrace dumb luck or <laughs> if you can em- advise dumb luck onto someone, but I think that's what it was. I mean, I, I really was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time for me. You know, it was a place where I could really flourish where my weaknesses were not always apparent, like my inability to my stubbornness, my, uh, was allowed to flourish in a place where there were very limited number of people, um, sort of, you know, Mike Lazo cut us, cut us loose, you know, gave us tremendous, unbelievable opportunities. Like that had I gone to LA to seek this kind of work, it would have just crushed me. You know, I would have, uh, I don't know that I could have, I could have hung with being an assistant for a while, certainly. Um, but it's a very hard system to really get ahead in and certainly to get your voice heard or to have your, anything that's a unique comedic voice to cut through on any sort of platform. Mm -hmm. I happened to be on the ground floor. I felt like I was on the ground floor of Google, you know, in a way. And for better or worse, we were allowed to flourish and grow and also embrace our own voice, you know, and at the time I probably did not realize how precarious the block was when it was growing. I remember one of our ad sales guys making fun of the fact that he was like, I'd like to see you go in front of a room full of ad buyers with a ball of meat as your, (laughs) as the thing you're selling, you know? And, And I remember one time next to him at a urinal and he was like, you guys did good with that show. You really pulled that shit out of the fire. And I was like, <laughs> what? You know, I was like completely, I had just blinders on. Like, and on Space Ghost, I was just really working on someone's hobby. It was Mike Lazo's baby. And I, Matt and I were just kind of helping tend to it and take care of it. And I don't think we realized how this block could not, could possibly fail. And then it'd go away. I don't think we realized making that Aqua Teen epi- the pilot that this could be one and done. I never even thought of it that I loved it so much that I was just, I was all in and it's nice to be all in and have it pay off. And it's rare. And at, later in my career, I learned about how things, how things can get canceled and how pilots cannot happen and how you can get fired off of things. And I was just so lucky. So I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing, but I don't know that I have any advice for myself. So if I could talk to you about some of your other endeavors, uh, I really would be interested to hear what you have to say about your time on Celebrity Deathmatch, because there's not a whole lot of information about that. And, and I see you're credited on 14 episodes, but when I track those episodes down, it doesn't really sound like you. So I'm not really sure what the deal is. It's not me. Really? So you had nothing it's a to mistake. do? Yeah, I never did. I never did a voice on Deathmatch. Oh, wow. Okay. I, did, did Matt Harrigan work on that? He did. He was the head writer for a so, while. So that's why I thought you were involved. But wow, I had... Wow. Okay. Uh, I, I I wrote a couple of them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, 
just on the side. And it was fun. But Harrigan, yeah, yeah, he was the head writer on that show. And he was head writer on Space Ghost for a while. But it was, it was a different world. It was very, it was, um, that show is very sort of regimented uh, for a lot of reasons. And it would have, there were legal issues too. Like you had to, you had to come up with a, for whatever reason, you know, you had to follow parody laws. Mm-hmm. Legally, you had to come up with a reason why this one person wanted to um, fight this other person to the death, <laughs> I guess. And so, uh, I don't know. I wrote a little spec thing for, for them um, where it was a fight between Jeffrey Dahmer and the Fat Boys. And uh, <laughs> it's just stupid, you know. But But you... You couldn't really play with the form. Like, I think I had an idea where someone gets stuffed in a wood chipper and it just fills the arena with blood and it just gets stuck. And they had to have a a pain delay uh, (laughs) so that they had to go to alternate programming (laughs) while they they figure out what's up with the wood chipper. And, you know, it, it, it was a show that was very driven by one guy who would he would just pitch pitch these ways to do it. And, you know, you, you're just, uh, you know, you're just doing carpentry work for someone else who's, sure. you know, the, the, the general contractor, but it was fun. It was fun. So I want to ask about monster Christmas, the uh, children's book that you wrote with Bob Pettit. Well, I don't know that you wrote it with him, but he worked on it as well. Oh my God. Well, you're going deep. Yeah. Yeah. We wrote it together. Um, yeah. Well, Bob is our longtime, uh, background artist and he did, um, well, he did some of the initial illustrations and then we got another guy, Ben Bowling, involved. Um, I think we just talked about this idea and maybe this is before, obviously, Hotel Transylvania. And this is, but it was after Mr. Show had done that Monster Mash um, skit. So I was like, well, I, I don't know. We, we, we cranked it. I think it's. I don't know. I think it's cute. It's great, you know, but we were, we also didn't know what we were doing and we were like, well, let's self-publish it. And I think we've sold, I don't know, 20 of these worldwide, but, uh, you know, but I, I'm proud of it. I think it's great. I read it to my kids back when they were little and, Mm -hmm. you know, my question is where can we get that? Because all I can see it on is Amazon. So I bought it there and, but it doesn't work. Like all the pages are like messed up or something. So I don't, I don't even Um, know where I can buy that. I think it's available on on Apple Books. Okay. It should be. Um, I don't have an iPad or anything, so I, I, I can't. I don't know that it will let me buy it there on my computer, but I can uh, check. Huh. I'll, I'll I see mean, if I've just got a hard file of it. I can just send it to you. Let's say Christmas is coming up. You should get that back on Amazon. Get it working again. <laughs> well, it's the thing is so tricky. It's like, how do you even... Like, I think, I, I think we did it, like, right when I first joined Twitter very early on. And, but even then it was like, you, like, how many times do you tweet about something, you know? And you're like, right. Yeah. I, I struggle like that with plantasm. I'm like, look, the world that cares is going to find it. And the world that doesn't is not going to, no matter how many times you tweet about it, <laughs> you, but you feel like I'm a one man PR machine for what I'm doing, you know? And that's right. what it is to be a, creative nowadays anyways but mm-hmm. um i'll check that out but um i thought we yeah i think it's i think it's designed ideally for apple for apple, okay. the apple books uh gotcha. program but okay. if you have an iphone it should work i want to ask about two 
things that you are working on that you've mentioned in other podcasts to see if there's any development with those. So first of all, you, you talked about a comedy pilot for Comedy Central. It was a future Western. Jeez. Did I talk about that? Okay. Yeah, you did. Uh, it was in the, the past year. I mean, if it doesn't ring any bells, then. No, 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 no. It, de- it definitely rings bells. We, we just finished it yesterday. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's animated. Stars uh, Sam Richardson and um, Dan Fogler and uh, uh, Natalie Morales. I'm in it. We've got some other great people. Johnny Pemberton, James Austin Johnson. And it's, uh, yeah, it's like a, a feature where uh, I'm doing it with Chris Kelly. Casper Kelly. Um, yeah, the future half the country's underwater and Texas takes over the other half by force and uh, introduces <laughs> the codes of the Old West. It's about a traveling uh, judge in New Texas. New Texas. And um, <laughs> it's probably, I don't know if I'm even allowed to talk about it, but. Yeah, um, I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah, we made the pilot and uh, we just finished it yesterday and it'll get focus tested and then um, they'll decide whether they want to make more or not uh the other thing i've heard you mention was something is this is from memory now it was like a halfway house with superheroes and i remember there was a character you mentioned named ron or ronnie or something like that ronnie yeah yeah no that was called the outhouse and it was yeah it was a halfway house where guys had a so um it was a script we wrote for adult swim and it just didn't it just didn't get picked up but it just these three just idiot not really criminals, just disadvantaged people who lived in a halfway house, but they had superpowers, but they weren't like super villains. Like if they were smart, they'd figure out a way to use it for villainy. And instead this, this guy, Ronnie could draw anything and it would just, it was like Harold and the purple crayon only just like evil, uh, but just like mid forties, uh, angry at the world. (laughs) but not capable of uh, doing anything about it. I'm bummed that didn't work out. I was hoping there'd be, uh, you know, more Ronnie representation out there, good or bad. Yeah, I am too. I, I am too. It was really funny. It sort of tapped it in, into the Carl Dirtbag mm-hmm. side of me. Um, I did that with a guy, uh, Keith Fogelsong, who's running a hit monkey for Hulu now. But um, yeah, yeah, Keith. Keith and I um, like to work together, too. and he's, he's great. Okay, I have a couple fan questions here for you. Uh, first of all, a question from me. Uh, you, you, of course, have uh, referenced Rush throughout your work. You have uh, the Spirit Journey Formation <laughs> Anniversary uh, episode. You have uh, the late, great Neil Peart in the 2007 film. I was wondering what your favorite Rush album is. You know, I don't. I don't own the discography, but I think Power Windows might have come, in at, come out when I was in high school and I just thought it was like the deepest thing. Later on, I had to get a little older to go, okay, all right, the poetry here is not not super great. (laughs) (laughs) Not as good as I thought. But, but you know, I I think I still just responded to just the math rock of of them. And, of course, you know, I'm of that certain era, like, where I admire them. And I I think that was right on the edge of right before I started to go, 
hey, this indie rock here is pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it doesn't all have to be classic rock that I grew up with. Right, right. I have a question for you from a super fan. This guy is so obsessed with you that he left his comfortable job at Turner to work on your silly food show. This is a, a fan by the name of J. Wade Edwards, and his question for you is, what is your favorite baseball stadium? Jay uh, is, uh, was our first editor and producer on the show and helped establish the language of the show and just the timing of the show and was an important pillar to the show. But, um, but he and I are both Braves fans from way back, and we try to do a baseball trip every year. Um, I would probably say PNC Park in um, Pittsburgh. It's uh, just really nice just looking out over the river and for Manny Brothers uh, sandwiches and hoagies and whatnot. I thought that was pretty beautiful layout. But uh, the truest park in Atlanta is pretty, not, not, no slouch. I don't think Jay's been, since he moved to LA, I don't think he's, uh, I don't think he's been to the truest yet. So he'll have to check it out then. He will. He will. So I have a question for you from Carson, and I understand if you can't answer this one, but Carson wants to know what order the 10 aquadonks were produced in. Were they done in upload order or at a certain time, depending on who was editing between the six editors? My God. Um, man, I don't know if I could tell you. Um, but I think I did. I think we did do the, the I think we wrote the ham, the two ham bananas together and then I think we were like, let's make these two separate ones and make them sort of the bookends of the thing. So that might have been the first, seems like that was the first one that we thought to do. Sure. No, other than that, no, I have no no, no clue. Uh, listener Shinsuke wants to know how you and Matt came up with the voices and characterizations for the Moonanites. Um, when we wrote them initially, I mean, that I was using sort of a version of the master shake voice I was doing just cause it was just so dickish <laughs> and pompous, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was like the pomposity of, of just some adolescent punk. And I think we wrote Ur. we had written Ur kind of the same way, but once Matt got in the booth, we pitched it up and then, we just changed it right on the spot because it just felt like um, felt like Ur was too similar to Ignignac. So then we just so sometimes Ur would be a hype man, and then sometimes Ur would bring his own uh, flavor and just over caffeinated energy to things. And it sort of not, was a nice play against this sort of mild, lordly, like high minded <laughs> insults of Ignignac for her to just be hopping around and just throwing stuff at it. And it, it, in a weird sort of way, I think Matt is kind of sort of channeling a channeling some, some side of himself. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it, how it sort of, how it changed. Uh, My last listener question is from uh, rooster. Rooster says, I noticed that the second to last Aqua Teen episode, which is the one where Meatwad has like a family, and the final Squidbillies episode both focus on a younger character, Meatwad and Rusty, having to grow up and become mature. I was wondering if that was a coincidence or does this theme have a personal connection to Dave? Well, 
with the rusty thing, I think Jim and I were sort of like, it's tough to close out a series and it's tough to do it well. I mean, I just watched the finale, not to compare us to Atlanta, but because Atlanta's a great show, but but I watched the finale last night and I thought it was awesome. But maybe I liked it because it didn't really try to embrace just the entirety of this series, which is just so vast. And I mean, with, with Squidbillies, I think we thought, well, the natural thing would be Rusty would get out. And then how does he, he's been broken up with Tammy for a long time. You know, they would have to get back together. So there was kind of a lot of figuring out how that would work in a believable and in a satisfying, you know, fashion. So that one in particular, we wanted it to feel right. And there was an episode where he had his kid, Macho Man, and I felt like we ended that episode perfectly you're just with him and his kid and you're hearing all the other characters bitch about him in the background but it's it's exactly that it's just background so we wanted it to feel right with aqua teen i don't know if we put that much as much feeling into it (laughs) i mean i i wanted it to feel like a to stir some emotion but you know we grafted Meatwad is an old man. It's just funny to imagine Meatwad as an old man with a family and settled down. And so that was different. And also, we were telling the world it was the final episode, and it wasn't. And there was going to be one more final episode that we don't tell anybody about. So it felt funny to lean into maybe the pretension of that moment mm-hmm. and then um, and then have some 10th episode. In a previous interview, you mentioned working in Alaska. I wasn't sure if you were joking or not. Is that true? Did you really? Yeah, I, I uh, when I got out of college, I, I did a lot of odd jobs for for like two two or three years, really. Before I, um, yeah, I, I cut fish in Alaska, and I worked as a deckhand on a on a riverboat on the Mississippi for for about six months. It's uh, was a lift op at a ski resort. Worked at Yellowstone National Park. I just kind of. Did what they call a gap year, <laughs> couple gap years. You also worked uh, on Atlanta uh, rap videos, I heard, and uh, I did. I, we, we could kind of see some of that expertise and the extra, the special features of Plantasm during that music video, where you are blowing wind in in, in a beard. I, I could see your expertise at hand right there. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's that's really cool about like all those odd jobs. I, I couldn't tell if you were joking about the Alaska thing specifically, but that's awesome. No, no, no. It's it's. It was real. I kind of feel like every kid ought to do it, you know, when they get out of school. It was was a nice, nice perspective. Um, Something that really interests me is on the Radio Labyrinth podcast, you were talking about how through most of your life, you didn't really get the Grateful Dead until you got into your 50s. And now you are really big into them. And that's that's how obviously like I'm not in my 50s, but that's how I feel is because I've tried to listen to them and I just don't get it. So I was hoping you could give me an album or a song that I could listen to on my 50th birthday and see if it clicks. Oh, my God. Well, I'm not a gr- I'm not I wouldn't be a great source for that. But, um, you know, I always kind of like the dead. I like I like their sort of very classic songs. It was the drums in space and the live aspect of it that I just thought it felt a little bit like a bandwagon, especially when I was in college and people were into it. And I was like, you know, this sounds like just a bunch of retirees just, (laughs) you know, like singing with broken vocal cords. And 
I just didn't get it. And I think having Sirius XM and that Grateful Dead and the big Steve hour, like I love that guy and he was a roadie for them. I always wanted to use his voice in a cartoon. He's So maybe I would advocate that, that guy talking about it. And I would advocate the Amazon, what a long, strange trip it's been. I think it's what it's called, that six-part documentary. I know that's a big investment for someone who does not <laughs> like this, but... <laughs> I'm telling you, you get a very, it's, it's, it's a charming document. And I think it's interesting that the, someone like Bob Dylan would be so burned out in the eighties that he would say, I wanted, I wanted to be a member of the Grateful Dead. Like it's more of an experience. And Matt Harrigan took me to my first dead show last year. And I know it's not the dead, it's dead and company, but it was a marvel. I loved it. And I loved it. And uh, I ran into one of our, animators there matt jenkins and and it's amazing to see a guy like john mayer who i know started his career in atlanta working at a studio we used to work at answering phones but you see a guy like that who's a superstar who's got unbelievable talent and instead he's just hanging back and trying to play with the ensemble bob weir and all these old guys and it really sort of speaks to the music it's just a vibe i don't know i I, it's hard to hard to say i would not call myself a deadhead by any stretch, but I admire it to the point where my um, wife is um, very insistent that I don't turn it to that station. (laughs) And, um, you know, and I think you also reach a point where you start to look back on certain music you liked. There was a guy like Robin Hitchcock. I just saw him recently. And I It was a lark. I saw him on a lark. I, you know, I haven't probably listened to him in 20 years. It was a great show. And then I looked, I started, went on a Google deep dive and it was like the Grateful Dead covered one of his songs, Chinese Bones, and it's on YouTube. And it's just like, that's so crazy. It's all, it all, you're at this place where it's like, it kind of comes, you know, you're doing new stuff and you see yourself branching out, but you're also kind of coming full circle, you know? So I don't know. There's a beauty to it, maybe that I can't explain properly on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I just, I just have a, a few questions about some of your favorite things. So what is your favorite band and or album? I mean, I certainly saw I saw Pavement recently and just it brought so much joy uh, to me. It, at times it felt like the soundtrack of my young adult life. We did that Pavement episode of Space Ghost. So in a way that was kind of full circle too, you know, and as far as in terms of an all-timer, that would be probably a pretty good pick. Darling, don't you go and cut your hair. Album, I think, over my life, over my lifetime, I keep going back to... Uh, I keep going back to Exile on Main Street and Astral Weeks as two just albums that always seem to have something new for me. You know, I'll forget about them for years and then I'll pick them back up and, um, you know. Favorite film and or television show? Film, for lack of a better answer, maybe Bottle Rocket, just because it hit me right at the right time. 
the hell are you wearing? Yeah. It's a jumpsuit. Clay, look at this guy. He looks like a rodeo clown. <laughs> he looks like a little banana. Where are you from anyway, man? I'm from around here. This guy used to mow our lawn. No shit. Yeah, he was great. Clipping the hedges, sweeping up, mowing the lawn. <laughs> what was the name of your little lawn mowing company? The Lawn Wranglers. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to look it up. Really? Yeah, it's Wes Anderson's first movie. And, um, uh, and Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson's first movie. And Oh, um, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've not seen that? I, I no. <laughs> oh, man. You're in for a treat. It's, 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 it's great. It's great. And um, it's crazy. It's like I vacationed in France like four years ago. I was up in sort of Normandy area and um, just grabbing some, grabbing some baguettes to hop in a car to take off somewhere else. And uh, I see down the street, about 50 yards away, this guy in a seersucker suit and a bob hair cut and i was like i'll be damned that is wes anderson and uh <laughs> and so i walked past him and i was not going to stop but i mean in the middle of a deserted street in the middle of nowhere france and i was like i just i kept walking did not even alter my stride i was like hey uh bottle rocket is my favorite movie <laughs> you know and just kept going and then he stopped me and was like oh oh that's great you know and then he, <laughs> you know it's, so we talked for five minutes but I wow. was like, you know, wow. Yeah. And I, of course, I mean, I, when I turned 50, I made my kids watch the Godfather trilogy with me, but you know, but, but, but yeah, yeah. Bottle Rocket always hit me at the right time. It was the right movie for me. It's, it's so incredibly funny. And we still, we still quote things from it. As far as TV shows go, I don't, I probably don't have anything very interesting to say there. Um, you know, that everyone else doesn't, you know, the, Sopran the Sopranos, The Wire, but I will put a plug in for Patriot on Amazon, which is like easily top five shows of all time for me. And wow, okay. utterly disappointing that they didn't get to make more than mm. two seasons, Steve uh, Conrad. And he made, he made another interesting thing for, uh, I think it was AMC. I don't know who, who he made, uh, Perpetual Grace Limited, which is also interesting, but man, Patriot is straight up just funny. The same thing. It's just got its own unique vibe. And uh, I would urge anyone to to watch uh, the, the two seasons of that show. I'll have to check that out as well. Yeah. Uh, favorite book? I don't know if I have anything interesting for you on that one. I mean... <laughs> That's all right. I mean, on my nightstand right now is the new George Saunders and the new um, Cormac McCarthy. I'm excited about um, both of them, if I can get through this this book that's kind of bogging me down right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of half interested. I'm eyeing these other two. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I did read uh, Moby Dick uh, for the first time like four years ago, and I was like, oh, all right. I see what I see where all the praise comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see why it's a classic yeah. novel. I this Melville's pretty, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty decent. It's got the Dave stamp of approval on that one. It's crazily accessible in a way that I think I stayed away from it because it was just like, oh my God, I don't want to power through the. And um, it's fantastic. It's definitely one of those books where I feel like everybody should, everybody should read this. So since you, you make a uh, television show about uh, fast food products, what is your favorite fast food burger joint? That I can answer. 
I am, uh, but I'm occasionally torn. I have a weakness for Steak and Shake. Mm. They have a Wisconsin uh, cheddar burger that I like. I'm not sure why, uh, but yeah, that Steak and Shake. I'll, I'll if it's a road trip, I'll, I'll look for a <laughs> Steak and Shake and <laughs> Crystals. I. I like Chris. It's garbage. I know it's garbage. I know I'm putting <laughs> garbage into my system yep, and killing yep. myself slowly. But mm. um, I like Crystal's chicks and Taco Bell, which I know. Um, I know um, there was a guy, a comedian, who used to just search for Taco Bell and diarrhea and just retweet those. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it never ceased. To make me laugh, but um, hey, I, I mean, a Taco Bell bean burrito, man. Can't go wrong it's with a it. Very, very simple staple. There you have it, my conversation with Dave Willis. The podcaster in me is like, dang it, I should have followed up on this, or I should have asked this instead. But then the Aqua Teen fan in me, you know, I've been I've been a fan of Aqua Teen since I was 10. I'm now almost 30. The Aqua Teen fan in me is like, you know, to quote Dave, oh my God, holy shit. So it's kind of this duality, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. You may be asking, hey man, where's that Carl part that you were talking about? Carl didn't make an appearance until the very end of our interview, so you'll hear him shortly. Hold your horses. I really appreciate how generous Dave was with his time and how willing he was to talk. You know, one of my favorite answers that Dave gave was when I was asking for a Grateful Dead recommendation. And he's like, well, I'm not a deadhead, but you got to listen to the six hour documentary. And then also you got to listen to the radio archives. (laughs) I think he's more of a deadhead than he really thinks he is. Anyways, I'm hoping this isn't the only time that Dave will come on the podcast, and I know that we'll definitely have more questions for him as, as we continue to to weave our way through Aqua Teen Hunger Force and just find more questions that, that we can't find answers to. But anyways, in the meantime, the best way to support Dave is by Plantasm, and I, I really mean this. The future of Aqua Teen genuinely rides on the success of that film. The better the film does the more likely it is to come back. Everybody wants it to come back, and I mean everybody who works on the show, everybody I've talked to, they just really want this show to come back, and we are the only ones that can make that happen by buying the film. So if you've bought it, good on you. If you haven't, I mean, hey, it's 20 bucks. 20 bucks to get your favorite show to come back. That's not too bad. That's not a bad deal. Links in the show notes for how to find Dave. He's on Twitter at DaveWillis2 and Instagram at DaveWillisShakeTable. So again, links in the show notes if you want to follow Dave. He's always doing some fun stuff on social media. But again, thank you for listening. You know, it's because of you listeners and and, and you patrons that I just kept doing this and, and got to speak to Dave Willis, something I never thought would happen. And of course, thank you to my wonderful wife, Hannah, for supporting me. I'm just so thankful to, to everybody for making just this crazy thing happen. So normally this is where I shout out our number one in the Hood G tier patrons, but, you know, towards the end of the interview, Meatwad and Carl showed up and they're like, hey, let us do it. So I was very surprised there. I didn't know if I would see those guys, but they showed up. Take it away, fellas. I'd like to give a shout out to Sean and Ian and Captain Buford. I salute you. I don't know what member of the armed forces used from Captain Buford, but I honor your sacrifice and your service so that you can support this podcast. And, uh, what else? Brain? Oh, no. No, that's Brian. Br- Brian. Brian. That's, oh, that's a good Irish boy. Uh, Robinson. 
And uh, Reverend Raven 46, I'll have you know I was raised Catholic. I rejected it because they don't understand that man is flawed and that sometimes he just got to get his rocks off. <laughs> Reverend Raven 46, you the man. Merry Christmas. Everyone should say Merry Christmas during the holidays. Ridiculous that the happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Reverend Raven 46. Since Carl's here, I actually have a question for you. How do you feel about Foreigner announcing their farewell tour? Oh, I'll be there front and center. And you know what? It feels like the first time. Oh, yeah. It feels like the first time, even though I've seen them 37 times. Every time it feels like the first time. I never understand why they don't have their own group of Foreigner heads. Uh, You know... I thought about starting that. Love it. Cold as ice, baby. It's kind of interesting because our first movie was very, um, it was long and unwieldy and like I said, we're making it with a skeleton crew. And I think if we'd have gone in and said, Hey, let's fix these aspects or do a little bit of a rewrite on it. It would have just, it would have taken us another two years. It would have just been forever. And we were making shows at the time. And it just, um, so the first movie kind of came out as sort of a weird, um, there's, you know, nothing out there like it <laughs> for better or worse, you know? Mm-hmm. And I still love those those first five minutes, I think just kick ass, you know, and, and we couldn't keep that pace for, and it's over. It's almost like, it's like two hours long, you know? It's long. Yeah. I was joking with someone recently that we went by the, uh, the Terra theater is a sort of famous theater in Atlanta and it's closing and it's been around ever since I've lived here and, uh, and longer. And, and, um, we went to a, a number of different theaters to see the Aquatine movie, the first one when it first came out. And that was the first one I went to. And it was like a seven o'clock show. So it was early. There weren't that many people. But I do remember during that Mastodon song with the snacks. An elderly couple hurriedly were hurriedly hustling up the aisle <laughs> like they were like now i'm definitely sure that this is not howard's end <laughs> like i've got that i did not see merchant or ivory in the opening credits i got it what is this um i do remember we got one review from this guy in premier magazine which was around at the time and um he gave us a uh, 100 on a scale of one to 100 and that's how they rated movies and he just said it was more surrealistic than uh, Dolly's Andalusia. <laughs> and I think, I think he was tongue in cheek, but I think he was like, I've not seen anything right. come out of the studio machine that's mm-hmm. anything like this. 